Callie Holloway is a writer, activist, and artist. I became aware of her work through a powerful, in-depth article she wrote for The Nation titled, How Thousands of Black Farmers Were Forced Off Their Land. You should absolutely read this article along with her other work about the violence committed against the lives of black trans people, CRT, CRT being white history, the killing of Armand Arbery, reparations, and so much more. But as it relates to black wealth and the wealth gap, we have to look at the journey of black farmers. I will also add that so much of black activism tends to occur in urban areas. Black people live everywhere and black lives have to matter in every zip code. We are so grateful to have Callie's voice on black farmers and many other things all on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Hope you enjoy. Callie Holloway, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm very good. Happy Friday. Happy Friday and and happy spring and a whole lot of other things. Oh my God, we are so close to spring forward, I can't even tell you. I know, and I hate, the spring forward is the weird one where you lose sleep, right? At least for me. You lose sleep, but you get your life back because you get daylight. You get daylight, that's right. Fall when you're like, oh, it's seasonal depression time. That's right. We're going to lose light. It's going to be dark at five. Yeah, that's right. And and I will tell you, that's really, I, I hadn't thought about that. And my wife and I have been walking more lately and we live in an area where we can walk and actually get something to eat. Unlike a lot of people in Atlanta where I am. And so yeah, having more, so you know, okay, well you get it. Yeah. I mean, there's Atlanta is, um, very car heavy, as you know. So being able to walk in the spring is a is a big deal for us. So yeah, looking. I'm glad that spring is here and looking for for more spring and more summer. So we have done episodes on black wealth, and a lot of times when we have that discussion, it's done through the lens of housing and sort of redlining and all of those things, which are you know, absolutely real. So it's not like we're off base on that. Or we'll talk about the impacts of sort of that redlining on on terms of earning income and transportation and education and all of those things, right? But when I came across your article in The Nation, how thousands of Black farmers were forced off their land, it added a big piece of the puzzle for me, at least in terms of the wealth gap between black and wh- black and white and it's i think it's like a nickel for every dollar for black families have a nickel for every dollar that white families have and black farmers and the land loss is a is a big part of that in your article is it's a great article by the way and i would encourage everyone to go read it it is it's actually it's one of those things that when when i read it and reread it it opened up so many portals for me to go go in so many directions, but it's really well written, very approachable, but it doesn't lose any sauce or it doesn't lose anything. So great job on that. How, when, and who, and how did how did this land loss occur? Wait, can I say one quick thing? I think the reason why when we talk about black wealth or the dearth of it, I think a big reason why we don't often immediately talk about land loss and farmland is because of the the amount of that farmland that's been stolen, right? We don't tend to immediately think about, I mean, the consequence of the land that's been stolen is that we don't see ourselves as connected to the land in the same, same way anymore. So, so you know, it, it's had a huge impact on how we see ourselves on this land. You know, I mean, I can start with just some basics. Yeah. Black folks have lost 90% of their land between 1910 and 1997, you know, I think it's the start of this really is a lot of that land is land that folks got post-emancipation. So, you know, Field Order 15 is never carried out. The U.S. says they are going to give Black folks 40 acres and a mule. They start to distribute some of that land, right? People are, are occupying it. They take it back. I don't know how many how many folks realize that, like, 
Black folks had started to cultivate their lives on that land yep. when the government came in and said, no, we're taking it back and giving it to Confederates, the people who were disloyal to this country. And after that, somehow, despite having pretty much no options, right? Black folks were able to, to scrimp and save and do whatever they needed to do to put together parcels of land. And somehow, by the early 20th century, they had 3 million acres of land. It, it kept expanding, which is astounding to me. We're talking about like the resourcefulness of a people, right, who, who have been given absolutely nothing, who are emancipated, and literally they're given this kind of short change on their emancipation. And the peak of Black land ownership is in 1910, when Black folks somehow have acquired between 1865, the end of the Civil War, and 1910, somewhere between 16 and 19 million acres of land. That's a lot of land. It's a lot of land. And then by 1920, we see the peak of uh, Black farmers, right? So like 14% of farmers in this country are, are Black. And I'm going to talk about the USDA land loss, but I just want to preface that with the fact that you have to also imagine that there is white terror that is rampant, right? Like white folks are still angry about emancipation, you know, post reconstruction. I mean, during reconstruction, obviously, but reconstruction, the 12 years that follow the civil war, you know, black folks are 13th, 14th, 15th amendment. They get citizenship, slavery ends, you know, ostensibly they are given all that you are supposed to be afforded as an American citizen. And they, seek land ownership, and yet they, they are terrorized, right? Like they are at the ballot box, mostly at the ballot box consistently. And w- another way that the KKK terrorizes Black folks is taking their land. There's White Caps, which is another group that's very similar to the KKK, formed right after the end of the Civil War. So Black folks are already having to contend with literally being chased off their land. Yep. Um, we, we don't have receipts for the amount of land that was stolen that way. So you have a kind of white violence, white vigilantism, which is you know obviously part of the white backlash to black emancipation, and then you have the USDA, which Lincoln forms in 1862, and then as soon as modernization around farms happens, it goes from being labor intensive to capital intensive. You need to have you know, and then there's all these kind of rules that the USDA uh, essentially sets up for folks in terms of how they were modern will modernize their farms and. You need loans for that, right? All farmers get loans. It is essentially in this country kind of impossible to function without loans. And particularly in the era right around the civil rights era. So from you know the mid-50s onward, that's when we really see black land loss start to happen at a clip under, you know, the aegis of the USDA. And quite literally, because the folks in the local offices were part of that white backlash that again we see happen every time there is a bit of black progress in this country, you can bet that there will be a reflexive bit of white violence, right? And white terror in response. We're in the midst of one of the, the biggest white backlashes uh, in history right now, probably second only to the one that toppled reconstruction. So from the 1950s onward, that's when we see the, the biggest land grab with the USDA taking land from black folks, usually through loan denials, which then puts them in arrears, makes it impossible for them to profit from their crops. There's a million ways that the USDA kind of does this on a local level. It's, you know, sometimes it's loan denial. Sometimes it's approving a loan and then not actually sending the money. Sometimes it's saying that a a farmer is going to get a certain amount of money and then shortchanging them on the amount that they were told. There's all kinds of nefarious workings here. But the ultimate end of that is that roughly 16 million acres were stolen. And that land, I mean, we, we've had some folks try to estimate the cost of that land, but I, I think it is impossible. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, there's a lot, a lot there. And I, I do want to, I want to cover pieces of all of that, but I want to go back to something. You talked about the founding of the USDA in 1862. And by the way, for anyone listening, Callie has a lot of great articles, and, and one of them is uh, there are a couple out there on on CRT, and and I'm going to to be a little CRT right. So let's not, let's not give it credit; it's not due. It's being called critical race theory, but it has nothing to actually do with the legal framework. Oh, it has nothing to do with it. No, it, it's so. And, and listen, even with that, when you talked about local, local is usually 
not good for black folks, whether it's local school boards right now, whether it's local election officials, whether it's local real estate boards back to the housing. Local is usually where it goes down. So, yeah, we don't want to give that in the air. In fact, we'll come back to that a little bit. But I want to get a little wonky here because I think it's important. So you mentioned Field Order 15, which is Sherman's order. This is the United States government. This is not, and I love Spike Lee. So when I say this, it's not Spike Lee didn't just choose 40 acres in the in right. mule because it sounded good. This was an actual thing. Yeah. So we have that, and definitely in the Charleston Sea Islands, you can talk to Black folks there and Gullah Geechee people who would talk about we were here and had this line and land, and now it's a resort. But there's something that that happens there with the Homestead Act in 1862. And you you talked about it. And I, I want to drill into that a little bit in terms of how land was given to farmers in general, whether it's black, white or what have you, because I think it's something really important there. So what what did the Homestead Act do? So I, I might I might be a little off on the figures here, but, you know, 1862, we have the Homestead Act. We have a second act, right, which is in 1866, which is a Southern Homestead Act. But both of those acts basically take, let's call it native lands, which is what it was, seized from the indigenous folks of this country, and they redistributed it to white folks. I mean, the only way for to, to say that, I mean, it's, it was very specific. These plots of land were cut up and, and given to free to anyone who was willing to homestead on it to set up their home, to farm it, to make it their own. So I think it's really important to realize that that isn't just something that happened in the past. There's an estimate that something like 45 million Americans today are, those are their ancestors, the folks who got that land. So that's intergenerational wealth that was handed down, right? And that that's the same intergenerational wealth that was denied Black folks. So these things are all connected. What, what happened then and where we are now this is the genesis of, of all that we see in terms of disparity in the racial caste system in this country. Yeah. And and, and listen, for I, I just want to repeat and underscore a little bit that because when a lot of times uh, we hear in America, people talk about bootstrapping and working hard and, you know, being industrious and the industrious and the rugged individualism and all of those things. It is really important to note that for many up for for 45 million Americans who are still living, a lot of their wealth is derived from the, and these are numbers I have in this from your article. So I have the, I have your article in front of me, 270 million acres given on 160 acre lots given. I mean, this is, I mean, those are massive lots of land, right? Yes. Yeah. This is, this is big land. Now at that same time, and for everyone who says, you know, Dr. King talked about his dream or what have you, Dr. King also talked about this land giveaway. And at the same time, black folks were being denied land. So we have the government at a time in, in, in the country giving away land to white farmers, also setting up the county agents, setting up the land grant colleges to help, you know, teach the farmers and all of these things. But the black folks that you, you described come out of bondage and into emancipation and during the reconstruction and some of the most violent, one of the most violent periods in our, our country, the reconstruction and the Nadir acquire significant amounts of land. And they're not a part of that Homestead Act in general. Yeah, Is that they are essentially systemically excluded from that. Mm-hmm. And, and so you mentioned the, Black land acquisition. I know Du Bois talked about Black Reconstruction, and you mentioned some of these things, land hunger and what have you. For Black folks acquiring this land, it's not given to them. So this is these are things like thrift, I would imagine. This would be working hard. This would be all of the things that makes a person high character. This is yeah, character, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the person who sort of, uh, one of the people that I spoke to who is a farmer, and I know we're going to get to Pickford, the lawsuit that kind of is the centerpiece of the contemporary conversation around this. But Bernice Atchison, her grandfather-in-law, right? So her husband's antecedent, emancipated from slavery, 
somehow manages to get this plot of land, clears it himself, doesn't have help. He, he somehow locates his also formerly enslaved brother, who this wasn't in the article, but he finds out is living a county away. They somehow connect with each other. I mean, we could go into a whole thing about Black folks trying to track each other down post post-emancipation, but they together clear this land and create a home on it. Uh, and that land that she ultimately ended losing because of the racism within the USDA was land that had been handed down from, you know, right after the Civil War. So when we say that the USDA, and it's been called the last plantation, let's go into a little bit of specifically what that that means of what the USDA did to facilitate that land loss. I mean, what, what it, you talked about loans and loans for farmers is th- this is something that all farmers need. This is not unique to black farmers, right? right? And how does that lending process, what, what, what specifically happens in there? And I'm not necessarily, you know, which applications, but just describe sort of what the process should be and what's happening or what happened or probably still happening to, to black farmers. It's definitely still happening. Okay. You go down to your local, you know, the USDA has its local sort of satellite offices all over the country in these, in these counties where that are heavy on farmland. You go down to that office. There is a local representative who you sit with and who, especially if you have been, you know, you might suspect that you could get a loan. But in some cases, I spoke to folks who had been told even by the USDA, they'd gotten a letter from the federal USDA telling them that they would be able to apply for a loan um, and basically implying that they would definitely get one. So you go down and you talk to a local representative and that representative, first you ask for the paperwork, which becomes its own hurdle, right? So you have to get the folks in the office to give you that paperwork. Now, when they have done, because the first reports that we have about the kind of, I don't want to say extreme because I think racism across America is extreme, but kind of, you know, the insidiousness of the racism within uh, within the USDA, the first reports verifying this are back to 1965, right? So we know that there are all these reports verifying this, including from the USDA itself. And they talk about this as one of the phenomenons that you see is agents in the offices telling black folks they're out of paperwork or that paperwork just doesn't exist, or um, telling them without even, you know, it's not their call to make. That paperwork is supposed to be sent somewhere else, telling them that they are ineligible. I talked to folks who the agent would just say, why why do you need that paperwork? You don't need to expand your land. Why do you think you need more land? Um, In the case of Bernice Atchison, they were told told several times over several years that not only that they didn't need to expand their land, but that the the first people in line necessarily were white folks. So basically black folks to the back, right? You you wait your turn. None of this was uncommon. We we see it in verified reports. Again, many of them done by congressional studies or by the USDA. And so there were there was that kind of denial of paperwork. If you were lucky enough to get an actual application which again, some people filled out their application. I've talked to farmers, black farmers who filled out their application work and had people tear up their applications in front of them and throw them in the garbage. If that paperwork was actually filled out, then you know the, the body that is responsible for deciding how the money gets distributed is the county commission, which is again, the local body elected Pretty much all well, the way. How, how are they? How are they elected? They, is this a county? So the, the local county commission. This is. I'm glad you said that because this is a point where I was. So we have the USDA and it has local offices, right? And then there's the county commissions. That's separate from the USDA. The county commissions are related to the USDA in that they are part of. No, they are part of the larger USDA system. I mean, one of the. Okay. One of the things I would love to see the USDA do and that black farmers are asking and have been asking for a very long time is if they scrap these commissions because they, they are three to 11 person panels, um, overwhelmingly white. They've tried to do some diversity on them. It hasn't worked. And they tend to, when money comes in, they distribute it to folks that look like them. So, you know, you might apply for a certain amount of money. Your loan might be denied. There's also that your loan might take, you might get your loan approved and they tell you that everything that you want is coming. And then it takes three times as long for your money to come in. Or sometimes 
the process takes, I mean, again, we've had studies that have looked, you know, very thoroughly at this over the years dating back to the 60s. We know that the processing time for applications from black farmers, you know, they drag it out. You know, so there were lots of ways that they sort of soft peddled or slow peddled getting money to folks, everything from just, you know, telling them they couldn't have an application to telling them that they were, you know, weren't valid applicants to withholding the money to shortchanging them, telling them they were going to get the money and then the money just never shows up or, or, or only a portion of the money shows up. And also just, you know, that's a really effective way if you if you don't give folks their money or if you withhold that money, if you slow pedal it and it takes so long for someone to plant their crops, then you're already behind, right? There's no way that you can catch up. So there are numerous FSA reports where they report on this phenomenon and they say that there's basically, there is no way that these farmers could make the money that they need. And are now white farmers having the same problem of getting loans during this time in the same way? I see no. nothing like this with white farmers. Mm-hmm. And you, you said that the uh, U.S., either a county commissioner or someone in the local office has commented on you don't need to expand your land or or you don't need a loan for this. Is that the role of the USDA or county to, to talk about how far you can go with your business? That's not. Oh, absolutely not. It is not up to you. No one asked you. I mean, right. your, your role basically is to facilitate kind of the, the paperwork exchange and to be there and to be available as an agent for folks. So if you are the, the kind of stopgap between folks and their money, you are functioning in a completely different role than the one that you are assigned. But the fact that the USDA has gotten so many complaints about this, that it's turned up in studies and that we know again and again when they've done, you know, USDA has held t- town halls and things of that nature, and they haven't removed those pl- those folks. In Bernice Atchison's case, for example, there was a man named Mr. Bird who she told me about by name, who was there for years and years and years and years. And you hear this again and again. And even though there were complaints about him from not just her, but you know, multiple black folks in that area, he never lost his job. He was he was there for you know at least a decade that she was dealing with him. Yeah, you mentioned that. In the local offices, this 3D11, and it's largely white, or what have you. I was wondering, are these elections, do people, are Black folks even aware a lot of times that, you know, it's time to vote on? I, I have I have voted literally every time, and I, I vote for dog catcher, I vote for popcorn popper, I vote for president, I vote for everything. I don't ever remember voting for a county commissioner or what have you. So I'm at a loss here a little bit. I mean, it probably is not something that exists in your area. Also, you're always going to be outvoted if you're a black farmer. You just are a smaller slice of the pie. I hadn't heard of them either. But, you know, if you if you are someone who farming is your life, you are very well acquainted with the system. Okay, and so another thing that you mentioned, and this kind of reminds me something uh, somewhat of the NFL. You mentioned that the Atchisons were quite skilled in helping other people building, sort of pick farrow, doing building farrowing pens. I think that's the, the the proper proper term. And when they decided to build their own or to start farrowing pigs on their own and doing it on their own land is when they ran into to problems. Is that is that a pattern within black farming or that I get good at a thing, right, whether it's farrowing pigs or growing strawberries or what have you and helping other people. But then when I get ready to do it on my own, I run into problems. I mean, I think that's it's in their case, they were they were so good, you know, they'd done it for other folks and they were, they'd obviously been so good at raising pigs that they were certified pig breeders, right? The USDA recognized them and made them like official pig breeders. But I think in general, you could just say that's true for black folks farming writ large. I mean, these are, most of these folks are players who are, are people who have had the land handed down. They, they learned farming from their family. It's a, a generational inheritance. So yeah, I think you could say that broadly about that they're great at farming. And yes, do I do, do I think there's been some elements of jealousy that we've seen because, you know, it gets real local. Yeah. I think that's happened too. And in, in, in the case of some of the folks that I talked to where there were white folks who thought that you maybe had a little too much and 
there was, and it sounds very conspiratorial, but there's even documentation in some cases that say a local lending office and a large white farmer down the street from you work together to make sure that you lose your land. Yeah. And when I was reading that and I was thinking about the current NFL lawsuit where you are 70 percent of the players are black. And then but when you start talking about moving into coaching and moving into managing and even ownership, right, it falls off. And so it's kind of the same thing here. Good enough to work, but not good enough to own or this block in terms of owning. And I'll let that go because I could go down a whole another uh, rabbit hole with that. Well, I think there actually is a kind of famous quote from a paper that I I looked up that was actually written in the 60s that was kind of about this. And there was a quote in that paper that was, Blacks were meant to work the land. They were never meant to own it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's that's there in the attitudes that we see with how we ended up with this land loss. Yeah. And and so you said Black farmers lost about 90 percent of their land, like 90% of the land during that time. Did white fam- farmers have land loss during that time? White farmers lost about 2% of their land. Uh, so what we also have to talk about is the way that land shifts hands and who can then take that land. When, when Black farmers had to give up their land because they were in arrears to the USDA or it was sold off at auction because they couldn't afford to maintain their farms anymore, that was often snapped up by white ban- land buyers and at a discount, right? <laughs> when white farmers lost their land, it just shifted hands to other white farmers. So you don't see this sort of collective land loss that happens and then a kind of larger communal loss of wealth that happens. It, it, it stayed in what we'll call the white wealth community. Yeah. So I've seen numbers, and I always think this is low, between that land loss being 250 to 400 billion in loss. I, to me, that seems low. I don't have any data for that. And it also doesn't talk about what the land could have produced or what would be, what could I have done with the, the land during that time? I want to come back to that a little bit. So we have this, the, the Atchison's aren't the only farmers who, black farmers who are experiencing this. And how does this tie into to Pickford? So there is a series of sort of individual lawsuits because black farmers, mostly around the South, are, are experiencing this and finally connect with each other and realize that, you know, this is part of a system. They decide to do something about it. There's initially Timothy Pigward, Pickford, who was the original claimant, decides that he is, you know, they have been sending off complaints to the USDA, to the Office of Civil Rights, getting no response. And I I do want to mention here that one of the things that happened, and I don't know how responsive they would have been otherwise, but in 1983, Ronald Reagan basically guts that office because it's of no value to him. So it closes for 13 years until it opens in 1996 during the Clinton years. But there's already this kind of rampant racism happening. And these farmers get together, a group of six initially, and they start driving around the country. I mean, just Serious grassroots, right? Getting in their pickup trucks, driving to other states, driving to meet other farmers, other black farmers, collecting their stories. And it ultimately ends up being a class action lawsuit. The six original plaintiffs get pro bono representation that turns out not to be pro bono. We'll get to that later. But yeah, they filed this massive lawsuit in 1997, which is against the USDA saying that they have basically been systemically shut out of loans and that they're losing their land. And there there were basically three intentions of this lawsuit, right? One was, I mean, above all, most of these folks just wanted their land back. This farming was their lives. They grew up on farms. They learned how to farm their, you know, their earliest memories were farming. They love farming. This is what they feel like they were born to do. So a lot of folks just wanted their land back. But one, they wanted debt cancellation. And I don't say debt relief because debt to say relief to me implies that there was some validity to this debt. This is debt that was made purely because of anti-Black racism, right? So they wanted debt cancellation. They wanted access to the USDA's land inventory, which, you know, I was able to find one figure that said it it had been announced by one figure, one uh, USDA figure that was somewhere in the area of 1.5 million acres. And they wanted early 
entree to if there were land availability. So that was like the three things that they wanted. It wasn't a lot to ask for, um, but more than anything, they were seeking to get their land back or to keep their land because a lot of these folks have been living under a cloud of debt for a very long time. It's ruined their debt elsewhere. They've got liens on their homes. Um, they are facing foreclosure. There was all kinds of stress associated with that. And so it, the case went to trial and uh, was resolved in 1999. We can talk about how that looked. Yeah, yeah. And so so, so just to just sort of recap, if I'm a black farmer and a part of farming, if I'm a farmer, I'm, I'm black. So there is so by definition of a black farmer now, I'm a black farmer. So I need to get my loan at a certain time of year. And if I don't get that loan at a certain time of year, I just can't get my crop out. I can't get get the, the machines, the seeds, the, the things that I need. The cap, It's a capital intensive process. And I'm just behind and I'm not able to get my get my crops out. And I'm running into debt because I guess I got to get money in other ways or, you know, I've got mortgages on house and all of these things. And it's known amongst black farmers that the USDA's local offices are delaying the paperwork, denying the paperwork, just systematically. When you walk office, you are going to encounter someone who is going to somehow try and stand in your way and keep you from getting loans. Yes. And so you mentioned six. This is way more than six farmers, I would assume, to to under Pickford. Yeah, it ended up being 22,000 under under the the initial a little over 22,000 for the initial um, round of Pickford litigation in 1997. So what the USDA in its local offices is doing is systemic in terms of this happening over and over. And the scale that we're talking about that this is happening to black farmers nearly universally. This is a, this is not an uncommon story. And so like anything else, I'm appealing and I'm appealing, I guess, to the USDA at the federal level, either through civil rights or what have you. And where I wanted to, to stop here, because I don't think this is a small thing. When Ronald Reagan comes in in the 80s and he talks about, you know, small government and all of these things, I think I really need people to hear this, whether we're talking about taxes and small government and all of those things. I need people to hear that that ends up hurting black folks by and large, because what I know about an organization I can look at a budget, and I can tell you what you value or what you don't value. Absolutely. And so if you're not funding the civil rights office, then those black farmers don't have any recourse. And that's not a small thing. It's it's the same in school funding for public schools. If you saying that, well, we got to make cuts, it's black kids that end up getting those cuts. So I, I really just need people to understand if you are an ally, <laughs> understand that Black Lives Matter it's not just a T-shirt and it's not just around a horrific. And I, I don't ever want to make light of, about, you know, police killings or any of that. But it's way more than that. It is about you've got to be able to make some changes. And now this is this is your interview. So I've, I've talked enough there. But anyway, so we have Pickford and there's 22,000. And you mentioned debt cancellation, access to land inventory and what what I'm terming as access to land as it becomes available, mm-hmm. and early and and sort of first first shot at loans in the future. Okay, did that address any of the ninety percent of the land lost? Did anybody get land back? One person. One person of the twenty two thousand. One person got land back. One person whose name I'm forgetting, but I, I do have it. There was one person when they did the sort of final tally and looked at who actually was able to have their loans canceled, for example, or who had their debt debt cancellation. They found that there was, in terms of actually getting land returned, there was only one person. Okay, one person. Okay, all right. The other thing is, is that in a lawsuit where you're talking about something being systemic and there's widespread discrimination. Who lost their job 
in this, like at the county level or in the USDA, who who was held accountable for this? <laughs> no one. But but I do want to before we jump ahead, I do want to talk about okay. some. I do want to talk about sort of what happened in that court process itself. Okay. Yep. All right. Go ahead. Yep. And the failings of Pigford because. One of the things that came up over and over again, at least for people who have the historical knowledge about it, when black farmers were in theory going to be given debt cancellation again, most recently in 2020, one of the things that kept being brought up by those on the right and another thing that folks kind of harped on, um, there was all this money that had already been given to black farmers, right? Okay. That they had gotten this deal out already, which actually never actually happened. And if people had listened to the farmers who in 1999, right, as the decision was about to be made, there was a hearing to assess the fairness of the deal that had been worked out between the USDA and the Department of Justice. It's kind of infamous. There are articles about it. Black farmers crowded this room and took turns talking at the mic and, and talking about just kind of how faulty this deal that had been worked out with the consent decree that the two sides had, or, or really the, the lawyers for both sides had worked out because the farmers were basically exiled from the room whenever those deals were going on. And one of the most critical things that happened among the class council is that they traded away discovery. So obviously there's a discovery process that is supposed to happen where Black farmers would be able to present their paperwork. The USDA would have to present its own records. You know, we'd have some accounting for what happened in Black and white. Under the terms of the deal, the class council for Black farmers, arguing that because farmers don't keep records, was their justification for this, there was no reason for there to be any sort of trading of discovery. So there were going to be two different ways that farmers could be compensated. There was going to be track A and track B. Track A, because again, farmers don't keep records, is the argument that class counsel presented. If you were under track A and you didn't have any records, you would be able to just say, I'm a farmer, I've been discriminated against, and you would be given $50,000. That was the number, the specific number that things were capped at. Never mind that $50,000 doesn't even buy a tractor. I'm not sure if it buys a tractor wheel, but that is what they, that is what they worked out. The farmers said again and again, this was not going to be enough money. It's clear that that was, it was beneficial for DOJ to close that door. What that ultimately meant was when black farmers try to make an appeal for information when they were going to go track B, which in, and track B was supposed to be this alternative route where if you did have records, you could get any amount of comp compensation that you needed. You just had to present your records. Unfortunately, the USDA would say, well, this isn't enough of a picture. And black farmers would then request the records from the USDA that kind of prove their point. And the USDA would say, well, there's no discovery process here. So from the beginning, this consent decree that was worked out between the class council and the Department of Justice was bunk. And if they had listened to the black farmers who showed up and flooded that courtroom in that fairness hearing before they even signed off, before the Judge Friedman ever signed off on the, that consent decree, they would have known. The, the, the people who most understood what was lacking there and, and their voices are documented. And if you ever get the chance to go online and just read through the transcript of that hearing, it is astounding to hear how accurate they were in terms of how faulty this deal was that was worked out. And so of the $50,000, so Pickford is the largest civil rights settlement in, the, in U.S. history. What's that number? I mean, they, there was supposed to be several billion, a couple billion under the first one. And then in 2010, it wasn't litigated again. But because there were so many farmers left out in 2010, they added another one point two five billion. So two or three billion, two to four billion somewhere in there. That's nowhere near the two hundred fifty million <laughs> or the three hundred fifty million of what the land was worth. That's not even close. Right. So that when you're talking and then it gets to fifty thousand per individual farmer, it doesn't even become close to rectifying or repairing the situation. 
Right. And class council had had they listened to experts. There was um, an expert economist from Tuskegee who told them what would actually be fair and kind of the minimum amount that would be fair. Looking at everything, all the information that we have available is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per farmer. And they scrapped that idea and, and they admit this. The reason why they chose fifty thousand dollars was because the victims of the Tuskegee experiment experiments had gotten thirty seven point five thousand each. That was the cap there. And so they figured fifty thousand dollars sounded right. Wow, that that is um, that's so how did how were how was council able to give away discovery like that? And and, and I, I don't I want to come back to this because in giving away discovery, what it sounds like is you can't really you can't correct the pattern unless you've discovered names, dates, times, processes, and who who did what. And so where I, where when I hear that discovery was given away and that I have to, if I'm a farmer, I go to my local USDA office. It, it's a local board. And redressing, whether it's the 50000 or the debt cancellation or access to what have you, are black farmers going back to the same people who discriminated against them in the first place? Exactly. You end up in this circular loop. And part of why they were able to sort of pass this off as a convincing or what would be a beneficial deal is that they assured when, in, in that fairness hearing when, when farmers kept saying $50,000 isn't enough, $50,000 isn't enough, both the USDA and their own class council, council told them, one, the $50,000 would be Absolutely automatic, right? They, they, the actual quote that appears uh, in much of the paperwork is it will be virtually automatic. You know, they assured people, including the judge, that you were you weren't going to need any real paperwork. They made it sound like it was just going to be, you know, you walked in, you said, "I'm a black farmer." They'd hand you this money. What they instead did was, even at that lowest level, which was fifty thousand dollars, they combated every single case. And this is the Department of Justice under Bush. They fought every single case tooth and nail to make sure none of that money got distributed. They spent $12 million not paying black farmers on lawyer fees, 56,000 hours to not actually pay these farmers, despite having reassured them that there was no reason. Because if if you didn't get the $50,000, which you would get because it was virtually automatic, but if you didn't, you could go track B. So exactly. They ended up in kind of this circular static hold where you are going to the exact same agency that discriminated against you the first time, they would issue a response. Uh, and they also lost the right to appeal. That was another thing that class counsel traded. So if you lost your case, let's say the USDA said, well, we don't find any wrongdoing. You didn't really have a chance to appeal. You could resubmit your paperwork, but the USDA, what is the chances that they're going to find a kind of new answer um, with sending that if you were sending the same paperwork along. So uh, there's just so many in, 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 I almost said in retrospect, but really black farmers at the time predicted this was going to, wasn't going to work out for anyone really. So with that and the black farmers knowing that this was not going to work out and it was not a good deal, what is sort of happening in that space now, especially in light of COVID? And I know during the Trump administration, there was different things that we had going with China and soybeans. So where are black farmers now in relation to Pickford and moving forward and the CARES Act or any of the things that have been happening or last couple of years? So in 2020 of March, March of 2020, the American Rescue Act was passed and it had an allotment of $5 billion four of which was specifically supposed to go to socially disadvantaged farmers. So this was a group of, I'm going to say broadly, farmers of color, right? Um, which black farmers were a part of. I, I think the law, I think it should have been a lot more pointedly dedicated to black farmers, but that is what was hashed out. And it was going to pay off all these, cancel all these debts that were outstanding. Uh, within a few months, there were lawsuits from white farmers who claimed this was a form of reverse discrimination because they were excluded from those monetary funds. And those were local lawsuits. In a couple cases, you see one in the Midwest. There was one in Florida, the judges. And what what we really know is basically that there's a, a leaning that these judges have toward the argument they're, that they're making because the judges did issue injunctions, which then put all of the payments on hold. But aside from those judges and those individual cases and the 
ridiculousness of white farmers now claiming 150 years down the road that they are somehow being shortchanged by the USDA. I think we also have to talk about the fact that Tom Vilsack, who is the head of the USDA, um, who was part of this decision, when when that money was signed off on, immediately had an opportunity to start distributing that money. There were so many of these farmers who have been fighting since the 90s and even earlier, right? So someone like Bernice Atchison, Lucius Abrams, these are folks who have been fighting since the early 80s, quite literally the early 80s, for any kind of justice around what the USDA has taken from them. He had the opportunity to start distributing that money on day one, and they dragged their feet. Uh, I read a couple of moments where he was in press conferences and answering questions and saying, we're going to do a tiered system. Um, Lloyd Wright, who is one of the people I interviewed for the article, he worked both in the Obama administration and the Clinton administration in the Office of Civil Rights. But one of the things he he said, and I think it's so true, is when you actually want to get stuff done, you do it. When you don't want to get stuff done, you create oh, yeah. processes, right? Oh, yeah. So that is what the USDA did here. And, and Tom Vilsack has, there's a lot of reasons why he is a problematic Secretary of Agriculture. It was incredibly disheartening to see Biden bring him back yet again, because he is the person who failed farmers the the first time around. And a lot of farmers were incredibly heartbroken to see that he was being renamed to that position. You know, he he has definitely lied about some of the changes in outcomes from when he was under the Obama administration and, and, and said that the USDA had changed its culture and that there were more black farmers. And there was an investigation of that by the counter. We found out that's not true. But there is clearly not a real commitment to correcting this you know, it it would have been very easy for them. We know that Donald Trump, when he wanted to get out payments to farmers, he he did it as quickly as possible, right? That we didn't have this kind of running around and process and we're going to create a commission and a whole rigmarole around it. That money simply announced it. went. Black farmers, again, were left waiting and waiting and waiting. And as they suspected, here we are, right? Everything is on hold. Yeah. And you, you mentioned reverse discrimination, that white farmers are saying this is reverse. A non-existent that non-existent. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting is, is that during the Elaine massacre in 1919, black folks were charged when they were defending themselves, were charged with night riding. So black folks were charged with a crime that was a part of the Ku Klux Klan Act from 1870 or something like that. So whenever I hear, yeah, whenever I hear reverse discrimination, this is it's just nuts to me. But you also in your article said that Lindsey Graham said that these the four billion I want to say payment amount to reparations. reparations. Yeah, and and so not only is that just factually incorrect, just based yeah. on the figures, right? This is a paltry sum compared to the value of the land, we will never be able to put a value on what was actually lost, right? That's incalculable. We'll never know that. That's just lost to time. But the other thing that I think angered me so much about it is a lot of times in this country, if Black folks are asking for some sort of repair to the damage that has been done by systemic racism that has been unstinting in this country, it is called reparations. And that word is supposed to be this signifier for a handout. For me, this country owes reparations, right? It is done at every single turn. It has had, historically, it has had options. It has had options to do the right thing. It has had options to give Black folks 40 acres and a mule. It has had options to even reparations in our past. You know who we gave reparations to under the Compensated Emancipation Act of 1862? Enslavers. We paid white enslavers for their trouble when they had to lose their free Black labor. So for me, this idea that somehow reparations is a tainted word or that it is a handout or that Black folks are asking for something that they aren't owed is just another attempt to sort of whitewash history. Because the greatest trick that America ever pulled to me is is to create this idea that the racial caste system is a, a natural consequence of Black folks' lack of a work ethic or their unwillingness to to push and to try. Um, and that is that's a narrative that this country has has certainly told black folks, but told themselves for a very long time. And these to correct that record is something that we see being pushed back on all the time, not just in the telling of history that we've always seen, the selective version of history that we're told in this story, but even now, right, as we're trying to piece together the realities of what that history looked like, we see this kind of vicious fight back against that. And I think that that would, because one, it would reveal the realities of 
how this how we actually form this racial caste system that we have, right? Why it's so unchanging, how it got put in place, and the way that America has always decided against having a multiracial democracy at every single opportunity that it's had, um, and and to tell the truth about what sort of white self-actualization has meant in this country. Yeah. And listen, so for me, reparations is not a bad, listen, it doesn't mean anything to me. And and it's not just a one sort of phase. Certainly there's the time period of where black folks were enslaved. And if- And everything since. (laughs) And everything since. So so that's where I was going to go is that, and, and even if we're talking about that period prior to the Civil War, if we were only talking about money, then we would be talking about a labor dispute. But we're talking about the dehumanization, the denial of education, the separation of families, all of those things. So then when you have this with the black farmers and we talked about housing and I mean, it's it's multifaceted and it's systemic. And just in this one instance, for anybody who's talking about reparations or it's a handout, 270 million acres given to 1.6 million Americans, 160 acre lots, and that's 45 million people still eating off of that. That's a handout. I mean, talk about culture, right? Yeah. So you, as far as I'm concerned, you can miss me. The reparations word doesn't scare me. And I, and I think it's one that, as far as I'm concerned, Black folks, and if you are an ally or whatever, you, I, I don't think it's a term that we should back off of because it's 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 appropriate. And this and this country could never fully make reparations. That's the reality. Is you know these yeah. these things that would be very in terms of like compensatory harm. This country will never be able to pay back black folks for the harm it it is inflicted at every single possible turn on black lives. Yeah. So. Clearly, you put a lot into this. Can you just share a little bit of in terms of your how long did you work on this article and how many people did you talk to? I know it's just because you really did an excellent job. And and again, for everyone, it's on. um, You can go to the nation's website and read it. But what did it take for you to write this article? Well, first of all, I, like a lot of people, didn't didn't know this story. Right. But I do spend a lot of time trying to contextualize this moment based on history. Because I think we spend a lot of time in this country saying, I don't understand how this happened. It's like, well, read a little history. I bet you, I bet you'll find out. So, you know, I read a a piece about it, started digging into it, thought it was an incredible story that wasn't getting enough airspace, pitched it. I thought it, it was initially supposed to be just like a regular, you know, you've seen my articles, you know, 1200 to maybe 800, 1800 word article and kind of without, I knew it couldn't be that as soon as I started digging further and talking to folks, Tracy McCurdy, who would be amazing for your show, by the way, she's the lawyer that I cite in this piece. She has been working, I mean, tirelessly, tirelessly on this stuff, helping black farmers who even now who didn't benefit from Pigford, helping them file, you know, their own pro se claims in court. I mean, she, she's, she's amazing. But, you know, just once I started to grapple with how big this all was and talking to folks, I knew it was going to have to be much bigger than that. I mean, to be honest with you, they had to cut 3000 words. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could tell from your, your writing in it, it wasn't just something that, you know, was just, I'm, I'm filing for, for deadline. Now I'm into journalist journalism speak. Uh, but, but I could tell that you put a, a lot of time into this. Folks are folks I was talking to all the time. You know what I mean? Like I was, you know, I would have these long conversations with Miss Atchison or Mr. Abrams. Like it's, these are real people many of them who are now in their 70s and 80s and and you're hearing about you know a lot of them have had illnesses yes and or had relatives or or partners who had illnesses or or lost folks and they attribute it to the stress of what they've experienced because of their land loss or having you know foreclosure hanging over their heads for literal decades so you know it became it became my entire life for a while i mean i had uh, easily a hundred pages of notes 
there's just so much there. I mean, you could easily, and people have, but you could easily write a, a book about it and still not tell the whole story. Yeah. Now, I want to thank you for that. And you can read the the passion and the, and the time and care that, that went into it. As we begin to close out a little bit here, and I really want to go and, and encourage everyone to read that article and, and Callie's other articles as well, because they're razor sharp. I mean, they, they that you don't pull any punches in terms of where you stand on these things. I want to ask you a question. What is Make It Right? What is the group, the Make It Right Project? The Make It Right Project is a project that I was a director of from 19, um, from 19, from 1930 to 1934, um, from 2000, uh, from 2018 to 2020. And it was basically a pilot project that was about taking down. I mean, I, I always say it was about taking down Confederate monuments and telling the truth about history, because that, again, th- this is this is what I believe is my kind of mission is to tell the truth about the lies that America tells and often doing that by historicizing where we are now. So for me, taking down Confederate monuments and removing the lie of, you know, the lost cause, which is this, you know, mythical yeah. idea around why the civil war was fought that it was dedicated to that. We had 10 Confederate monuments that we were specifically eyeing. Um, I was doing a lot of work. It's when you mentioned Charleston, I knew exactly what you meant because I did a lot of work in Charleston. I got to know a lot of people there, but yeah, just taking on these monuments out of the 10 that are, that we started with, Three are still standing. The other seven are down. Obviously, I was working with activists who were there before me, who were there after. I was doing a lot of media stuff, but also doing events and working with artists. But yeah, the goal was just to to elevate the work that was already being done by folks who were working really hard to take these monuments down from their public spaces and also to write about it and just bring attention to it. Yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned again Charleston. I went there first with my youngest son, after or right during the time of the funerals um, after Mother Emanuel. And that was my first time there. And it was just really blown away. And I remember seeing, because it's all right there, you know, Mother Emanuel's just down the street from this statue that was kind of looming over the city of John Calhoun, who who wrote the an article something that said the good of slavery is something like this and and, and you know back in, to- in eighteen before he gave a speech on the Senate floor where he said slavery is instead of a negative because there had been you know some abolitionist put, pushback he called it a positive good yeah a positive good right and and so you know I always thought that it was just right then and I I, I didn't have anything I said this is the problem right here. It's a visual representation in the way it was standing. It was just like it's looking over this, but it was just bad. So thank you for for your work there. And that could be a whole episode in and of itself. What are you working on now? I actually am working on a book right now. And it's it's basically, you know, kind of the stuff that we're talking about. It's taking things that looking at systems, you know, in our... we talk about systemic racism, racism a lot. Right. And I think we throw that around and it doesn't, people don't really understand like, no, it's the system that's broken. Like when you say like, this is, is not working, it's actually working exactly the way it was designed to work. So I'm writing about how literally these systems, you know, telling the story of the founding of so many of these things and the way that they were specifically designed to either harm or exclude black folks. And if you, if you set out to harm and exclude a certain group of folks, you will ultimately harm everyone, white supremacy hurts us all. So, you know, kind of giving the Genesis story to, to a lot of why we, we function so poorly as, as a country. Yeah, no, I look forward to that. And, um, you know, while, while we're there and I just, um, I, I can't help but make connections here, even with the giveaway or sort of the, the, the Homestead Act and talking about the land grant colleges. I don't know if you know, Adam Harris, he's with the, I think he writes for the Atlantic has a book called The State Must Provide and talks about the founding of of the land-grant colleges and then historically Black land-grant colleges and how out the gate, the funding the, the just starts to go awry in terms of literally from almost like 1870 to now. And I'm a, I'm a graduate of Jackson State University, so it's very personal to me, how the funding starts immediately. So when people will say that Black colleges are under-resourced and underfunded, well, 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 shit. And that it, it's 
it's because it's it's been set up that way. So anyway, we'll, I'll stop there. We look forward to to your your work. What does it mean to live well? I mean, for me, one of the things that's been most important is feeling like there is a purposeful thing that that I'm passionate about and that that I do because I feel like how you spend your days, if you feel like it's just trickling upward to someone else, I think that spills over into you know, the rest of your life. And for me, like I, I have very, very, I have a really amazing network of folks around me, both family and friends. That for me is like everything. Those are the three legs for me of life. Thank you for that. And so the parlay in all blue, parlay being the conversation and all blue is my nod to all blues derived music, whether it's jazz, rap, soul, rock and roll. So it's all blues and it's inner city blues, Marvin Gaye, kind of blues, Miles Davis, it's anything house music. So it's it's my nod to our culture and our, our gift of, of music. And you are the first, well, the first that I know of, performer musician singer that's uh joined us on the parlay and all blue what 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 do you where are you singing where what, what's your genre what's, what's your jam i do a lot of i mean i've been in bands for years but and always as a singer but pretty much generally usually in the indie rock realm when i was um i grew up with a parents who i grew up with pickers who parents who were basically music nerds Got right it. who so a lot of motown of every era a lot of 70s soul and then like kind of 60s rock and then, you know, kind of mom rock, which I think is like um, you know, 70s singer, writer, singer, songwriter stuff. So this boiling pot of a lot of stuff. And I feel like that just informed everything for me. And then as a teenager, I listened to all kinds of stuff. And now I'm in indie rock bands that where I'm, you know, just belting stuff out. That is awesome. That is awesome. Where where could I see you perform or where could I hear you? Well, the most recent band I've been in is Easy Lover. So you could look up our last EP. I'm actually in the middle of recording, finishing up our newest EP. So, and it's been some time. And then obviously that got extended by the coronavirus. So if you look up Easy Lover, The Night We Breathe, that was our last EP. Um, and it's also on like Spotify and, you know, Apple Music, all that stuff. All right. Well, well I will definitely look that up. If I, can, if I can get one more out of you or maybe two more. You said growing up, your parents music nerds. You mentioned soul. From growing up, which soul singer, soul album, soul song resonated with you? Oh my god, so many! I still put on Patti LaBelle and start crying. Okay, There's so much Patti LaBelle. I love the Delphonics because you know that was that was big in our house. Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes. Okay, the Shy Lights. I mean. I, I got you. I got you. And then you, you mentioned rock and that'll promise this will be the last one of, of sort of now is it classic rock? When I when I think of classic rock, it's a I mean it's my parents, so it's more like, you know, it's rock from their era. So it's like 70s, 60s, so you know, more like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. They were not they did not <laughs> I'm sorry, I always think of when people talk about the Beatles and how important the Beatles are, and my mom was like talking about in nineteen sixty four when all these white people were talking about this band that was going to be on TV. And she was like, and they came on, we were like, that's it. Like, so, you know, she never cared about that, but like, you know, there were, you know, she did love the Rolling Stones. She loved Carol King. Okay. Tapestry, Laura Nero. Um, you know, she, a, a, a lot of stuff. Um, you know, my dad was more the soul person, like solely soul. Yeah. I just love, love all that stuff. The other day I saw DeBarge doing, you can cut this out, but I saw. No, 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 I'm not cutting this out. Nope. You said DeBarge. I'm not, I'm not cutting this out. So Jasmine, you hear, you you hear this. Jasmine is, produces the show. Do not cut this part out. (laughs) So that, you know, NPR does those tiny desk concerts and they did an entire series for Black History Month. And a friend of mine sent me, the one that Elder Barge did, which is just Elder Barge in this tiny studio. He's playing a keyboard. There's, you know, someone behind him playing guitar, but it's like DeBarge songs, like 80s DeBarge songs, but very sort of toned, you know, and it was just, it was the day that 
my friend sent me the link the day that everything happened with Ukraine. Yeah. And just, you know, it's been such a nonstop. Things have been so not, that was what broke me. I just, of all this love, first of all, is one of my all time favorite songs, but what hearing him play that in this very like beautiful acoustic stripped out. I mean, I just lost it. So anyway, if you get a chance to, to watch that, please do. I will. I will. I will. And we, you know what? Listen, you have been so gracious with your your time and your information and really expanding the way we think about things. And I want to encourage everybody to read Callie's work. And I also want to say to Black folks, and I am a board member at the Urban League, and then whether you are an activist or what have you, is we have to include Black farmers and we have to include the entire sphere of Blackness. And I will even go as far as to say what's happening in Ukraine right now, and I'm not talking about the war or the invasion, I'm talking specifically about Africans and Caribbean and Caribbean, people from the Caribbean not being able to get out of the country and forced to walk or what have you. Is that, and then not being let in to Poland. And not I being, mean, and not being let in. Yeah. And 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 listen, if it's if it's happening to any black person on anywhere in the world, it's happening to you and me. And so we have to not just hear and have broken hearts or angry hearts or angry minds. We've got to get involved. And it, it doesn't matter to me how you get involved, but just just we gotta do something. And so I'm going to stop there. Callie Holloway, thank you so much for joining us. Parlay and I'll blow. Thank you so much for having me. And we've been trying to make this happen for a while. So thank you so much for your patience. It, it happened at the right time. It happened yeah. at the right time in the right way. Right. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thank you. And Jasmine, don't cut that out. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.